Amen. Thank you, Chris, worship team. Good morning. What is a delight to, to be back with you again this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to John chapter 12. We're coming to the last week, uh, not because we're to the end of John's gospel, but this week we come to John chapter 12, and we're going to conclude this series, Believing is Seeing where we've been walking through John's gospel in in what I call the Forrest Gump fashion. We began with the end of the story, with Jesus raised from the dead, meeting with his disciples in a closed upper room and declaring to them in the same way that the Father has sent me, now I'm sending you. And oh, by the way, I'm going to breathe upon you, symbolizing the Spirit of God that would come and would one day commission these men to go to the ends of the earth. And so we we saw that God now establishes worship in the person of His Son. We have a God who grants sight through His Son. We have a God who lays down His life, providing security and provision for us in the Good Shepherd, His Son. And a God who raises the dead, who takes our inheritance, as Chris read, makes it safe and secure in His Son. And yet this morning, as we turn to John chapter 12, Jesus marches into Jerusalem. This is coronation day for our great king. And yet what awaits our king on coronation day is not a crown, but a cross. You see, the path to glory, the way to glorify God requires death. The way to be pleasing, to honor, to esteem God will mean death death for our king, and it's through his death that the crown comes. It's through the cross that he will receive a great and lasting eternal crown. Our Bibles are open to John chapter 12. Would you stand with me out of honor for God as we read John chapter 12? We're just going to read verses 20 through 26 together this morning. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, And they asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Father, it is the prayer of my heart this morning that you would break up the stony hard ground that resides in my heart and in the hearts of those here this morning, and that you would take the seed of your holy word and plant it deep within us, cause the glory of Christ, his great value, his great worth to be magnified in our hearts so that, Father, you would bring about much fruit through our lives, and that that fruit, Father, would not be to our praise, but to the praise of your glorious great name. Lord, speak to us. Change us, I pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Perhaps one of my favorite missionaries, if for nothing else, it's because of his name, was C.T. Studd. 
I mean, after all, how can you not be a, a man worth emulating with a name like Stud? Uh, if I could go back, I would love to ask my parents to just name me Stud. Um, as a football player, it seemed it would be a fitting name. You know, Stud, you could have it on the back of your jersey. Well, C.T. Studd, he lived in 18, from 1860 to 1931, and he lived in England. And he was one of three sons born to a man who had acquired great wealth in India, uh, like many men in that time period, and he had moved his family then back to India to spend this great wealth. And it was there that his father actually had an encounter with a man you might be familiar with, D.L. Moody, Moody Bible Institute. Well, he had an encounter with D.L. Moody that changed his life. But his three boys, as boys that grow up in wealth would do, uh, went about their lives. And in fact, C.T. Studd in particular was a great cricket player. Uh, This boy could handle the wickets and the bat. And so as he grew and went off to college, uh, he was becoming quite the national cricket player. Had a very promising career in cricket in front of him, as well as a great fortune from his father awaiting him. And yet this man had an encounter with D.L. Moody as well. And so as C.T. Studd was confronted with the reality of a relationship with Jesus Christ, things began to change. And C.T. Studd actually became one of what's called the Cambridge Seven. And the Cambridge Seven were not some cricket marvels, uh, those that made England rise to power on the cricket scene. No, the Cambridge Seven were seven men who left everything they knew, their families, their homelands, to join a man named Hudson Taylor. You familiar with the name Hudson Taylor? China Inland Mission, right? He went with seven others to join Hudson Taylor and bring the gospel to the interior of China, to dress like the Chinese, to learn the language of the Chinese, so that they could bring the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth we've been talking about for weeks, to people who had never heard. And so he left everything as part of the Cambridge Seven and went to China. And there in China, as a man in his 20s, he met a beautiful Irish gal there on the mission field. They were married. And here's the amazing thing. His father said when he turned 25, he would inherit his estate. And mind you, this is a significant estate. Now, if I were C.T. Studd on the mission field in China, I would take the millions of dollars. It wasn't millions, it was pounds, but it was thousands and thousands of pounds in the 1800s. I would take it, and I would try to build a bigger base of ministry. Isn't that what you'd want to do? I mean, that seems wise, prudent. You know what C.T. Studd did with that wealth? Gave every dime of it away. A man named George Mueller, running an orphanage, received thousands of pounds from C.T. Studd and his wife. That D.L. Moody character and this thing called the Moody Bible Institute up in Chicago, many of the funds that started that institute came from C.T. Studd and his giving of this inheritance away. He saved a little bit for his bride. And young people, if you aren't married, this is a powerful encouragement to me. He had saved only a little bit left for his bride, a few thousand pounds. And on their wedding day, he gave that money to her. And you know what she said to him? How dare you give this money to me? We've got to give it away. (laughs) She said, you've set the example. Who are we going to give this to? They gave away every dime of their money. And yet, a few years later, health led uh, C.T. Studd to leave China. And they went to the United States, and he and his family would go to universities talking to young people all across the land, encouraging them that Christ was worth it. Christ was worth leaving friends, leaving family, leaving a country that you loved to go and bring the gospel to people that had never heard. 
But inside his belly, there was still a, a hunger. And there was a hunger for the people of India, a, a people he had seen uh, his father work among for many years. And so in 1900, he went to pastor in India. And there, the Lord gave him a distinct call. A call that his work as a missionary in the difficult places of the world was not done. He called him to Africa. And so against the council of doctors, against anyone who was around him, they said, you should not go. You're not healthy. C.T. Studd went. He went to Africa and ultimately gave his life, bringing the gospel to the interior of the continent of Africa. Here's what C.T. Studd said at the end of his life. As he was uh, talking before the committee, he said, Gentlemen, God has called me to go, and I will go. I will blaze the trail, through my grave may, uh, though my grave may only become a stepping stone that younger men may follow. <laughs> you see, C.T. Studd was willing to stake his career on Christ. He was willing to stake his inheritance on following and glorifying Christ. And he was willing to stake nothing short of his very life, to bring the gospel of Christ to people who had never heard. That's what it means to die to self, to bring great honor and glory to the Lord that we claim to love. And so what is it? What is it that stands behind a man like C.T. Studd? It's nothing short of worship, friends. Nothing short of worship. Worship is the fuel that drives our mission and it doesn't matter if that mission is to kids in Pekin, to your coworkers that you rub shoulders with every single day, to the people in your community that you live around, your neighbors, maybe even within your own family. It really doesn't matter. Worship is the fuel. It is what puts gas in the tank of our lives. And yet, God, you see, in his infinite wisdom, he's designed us to be a one-chamber object of worship. We, we have one chamber in which we can place object, an object to worship, and yet we clutter that, that chamber, don't we? We put objects, things of this world, pleasures, comforts, uh, security, false securities, and we cram it all in this little room, this, this space for worship that God has entrusted to us. Brothers and sisters, we need a liquidation sale. You see, to live radically like C.T. Studd lived, we have to clear the clutter from the room of our hearts and allow place for Jesus Christ alone. Only he can have rightful place in our hearts. Worship is the fuel. G.K. Chesterton was a great philosopher in England, friend of C.S. Lewis, and he said this about Christianity. He said, the problem with Christianity is not that it's been tried and found wanting. Rather, he said, the problem with Christianity is that it's been found difficult and left untried. And I believe what he's getting at is that we would much rather clutter the affections of our heart with all sorts of other things than do the hard work, the painful work, the costly work of clearing away the clutter and believing like C.T. Studd believed, that you can give away your inheritance and God will take care of you. That you can actually go when medical doctors say, don't go, and God will use you. Or like Jim Elliott, you can go to an Alka people, hostile, violent, and bring the gospel, even if it costs you your life. Is that the place that Christ has in your life? Is that the risk you're willing to take? 
Because you see, here is where the the difficulty comes in that Chesterton so rightly points out. There are things in our life that we're afraid to lose. Is it your comfort? The comfort of, of the life that men and women, valiant men and women, have given their lives to protect? Is it the security, the safety of of the work that you have? Is it the prominence of the position and esteem that God has given you in your workplace? That if you were to take a stand for Christ, you would lose that prominence, you would lose that position, potentially even lose your job. Are you afraid of what your family members will think, that they might disown you, call you crazy, nuts, and say, we want no part of you? What is it that you are laying hold of? What is the clutter in the room of your heart that's keeping Christ from having the central place in your heart and the only place in your heart? This morning, Jesus is telling you it's worth it. It's worth it to risk it all, to clear it all out, put it all on the table. And I don't know what God is asking you specifically to do. He may be calling you to go to China today. Or he may be calling you to have a difficult conversation with your boss at work this week. He may be calling you when you meet with your family for lunch today to talk about some things that have been brewing under the surface, some conflict that's unresolved. And you use the gospel as the balm that heals that conflict. I don't know, but there's things there. There are these idols in our heart that God wants to clear away so that we might embrace and experience the eternal joy that Jesus offers time and time again. This morning we're going to see, uh, first of all, that our King, Christ, models this for us. We're going to see the King's model in verses 23 and 24. We're going to see the King's message, His mandate to us in verses 24 and 25. And then lastly, we're going to see the motivation that our King gives us in verse 26. So we're going to start then by considering the King's model. And here's the reality. Jesus, as he rides on the donkey into Jerusalem, he rides into a crowd who cries out, Hosanna, Hosanna to the King of Kings. They're praising him. They're worshiping him. They're adoring him as he marches into Jerusalem. And yet this very same crowd, what are they going to say just some few days later? Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. That very crowd praising him upon his entry would just a short time later turn and be the ones declaring his need to die. And yet none of this, none of this was by accident. Jesus lost nothing that day on a cross. He gained salvation. Salvation for you, salvation for me, and for all, as we saw last week, all whom God would gather, scattered throughout the entire world. He has sheep who are not of the fold of Israel. And so what appeared to be utter failure, from the vantage point of everyone there, it seemed like it was a loss, a catastrophic loss. Why, Jesus, why would you die? And yet, what appeared to be great loss was our greatest gain. Jesus puts it in agronomic terms here in verse 24. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it cannot bear fruit. 
Now, I had to kind of shift the analogy a little bit from wheat to corn. I work at Precision Planting, spend a lot of time scouting corn, looking at corn seeds. So I'm just going to kind of shift Jesus' analogy a little bit into the corn world. But imagine this. One seed of corn buried two and a half inches into the ground. When it dies, it, it bears fruit to a corn stalk. Do you know how many corn seeds come from one stalk of, so, of corn? Somewhere around 600. That one seed, as it dies, gives life to this plant, will one day produce somewhere in the ballpark of 600 future seeds. And that's probably not the most productive plant. <laughs> Imagine a life like C.T. Studd planted in the heart of the darkest parts of Africa. How much fruit that life bore when it was exhausted for the cause of Christ. God has planted you, friends, in places I and other pastors, other leaders, other people in this room can never reach. And he does so. He does so to bear fruit, fruit to the glory of his name. Jesus here says, I am the model. My sacrificial death, it is what secures for you eternal joy. There is no doubt for us about this inheritance that God has offered to us. He has promised us that it is safe, it is secure. The payment was nothing short of the Son of God, fully God, fully man, in our place, such that his perfect righteousness is transferred to our account and our sinful, wicked rebellion transferred fully, completely to his account so that the wrath of God is exhausted on him and we can be reconciled to God. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans chapter 5. He says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. You see, the death of Christ, friends, secures for us eternal reconciliation with God. We can enter boldly with confidence into the presence of God because Christ marched in and was willing to take the cross before the crown. Jesus is our great example. And, and I want you to see that when it comes to these risks, when it comes to being willing to die, it's not random. Look at verse 23. It says, uh, Jesus answered and said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. All throughout this gospel, if we were to go back to, to John chapter 2 and John chapter 3 and John chapter 4, as that conflict, remember, like the, the macaroni and cheese where there's a few bubbles at the bottom of the pot and then the bubbles get up to the surface and then, whoa, it spilled over the top of the pan. Remember how that conflict worked from John 5 to John 8 and then last week in John 11, they're ready. They're, they're plotting to kill him. Remember that? You see, that, that conflict at every point, Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. It's here. On coronation day, riding on the donkey with, with shouts of Hosanna, ushering in the promise to David, Jesus knows that this is a call to die. A call to die a gruesome death, to be separated from the Father that he had loved eternally for all time, 
so that you and I might have an inheritance that is safe, secure, bound forever by his sacrifice. What are we to do? Well, in Ephesians chapter 5, I love this, Paul says, therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. I love my three children. They're here this morning in, in this service. They are great imitators. Uh, they imitate various things about me, and it's beautiful. It's, it's wonderful. There are some aspects I wish they wouldn't because I'm not a good imitator uh, to follow sometimes. I can be harsh. I can be crabby. I can be grumpy. And here Paul says, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. We have Christ as our ultimate affection. We want to be like him. So what does that look like? He says, well, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. You see that sacrificial death component comes into that story? What does it look like to be an imitator of God? It means to walk in love, a sacrificial, self-giving, self-dying love, a love that has others' eternal joy in view. That's what Christ is talking about here. That's the model of our king. Let's move on. Let's look at the king's mandate. And it's pretty simple here in verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it. And not only keep it now, but for eternal life. It boils down to what do you love and what do you hate? And when he says, love your life, I think here he's talking about those objects that are cluttering the room. What are the things in your affections that you're unwilling to get rid of? This time of year, I know in our front yard, there are all these little furry things called rabbits that love to dig up my yard and, and uh, put babies in my yard and, and do all sorts of crazy things. But there's something even worse than rabbits that sounds like rabbits that, that abides in our homes. They're called yabbits. You have yabbits at your house? Lord, I'll do whatever you ask, but, yeah, I affirm that truth, but I'm going to do something different because I don't want to give up this thing. You have yabbits in your house? I believe you do. I have them in mine. God, here Christ is saying, get rid of the yabbits. Following me leaves no room for yabbits. None. We are called to follow him. And the very things that we try to cling and hold on to, have you lived long enough to see this? I have. Designs that as an engineer, I, I made these beautiful things, this, this awesome undercarriage, only to see it go to production and turn into something I never envisioned, a warranty nightmare, and you're like, ah, how can this be? I thought this was gonna be glorious, and it's not. And so in seeking to preserve and, and love my life, you, you lose it. He says here as well, we, we have to hate our life in this world. Notice God doesn't pull us, he doesn't remove us from living in this dark, broken, fallen world. But he asks us to have a value system, a value structure that rightly esteems the great treasure that Christ is. And I think this is where the rubber meets the road and where we miss it so easily. And Chesterton calls us out. You see, we don't believe in the surpassing treasure of Christ so that we're willing to sell all to gain the pearl. We don't believe that the promises are true because our world, our culture, says it's all about risk management. Take the conservative path, get better insurance, 
hedge your finances, your, your life in such a way to mitigate risk, to mitigate sacrifice, and to position yourself to weather and endure all things. Jesus says, if you love your life and you try and save it, using these risk management strategies that our culture loves to present to us, that every marketing tool often ploys upon in our hearts, he says, no. No, you, you have to hate your life in this world. As Paul would say, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I'll see him face to face. Is that the posture of your heart? 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 and 16 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. What are the yabbits in your heart? Is it your own self-righteousness? I come to church, I serve here, I do this, these activities... But Lord, if you were to ask me to stop doing that and go do this, mm, we're going to have a problem. What is it you're unwilling to do? I was reminded of how simple this can be, friends. This week, there was a guy at work. Uh, the last time I had seen him, it was about a week ago. He just kind of, something happened. I was just kind of, that day. And he came in, asked me about some stuff, and I just kind of gave him a salty, snarly answer, a very smart aleck uh, response. And this week, I, I bumped in. I saw him actually coming down the hall. And the Lord convicted me and said, Matt, you need to go and talk to this man. And so I went to him. I said, Mark, I need to, I need to talk to you. Can, you. can you come in for a minute? So we stepped into a conference room, and I said, Mark, I just want to ask you, will you forgive me? Last time I saw you, I was really snarly, kind of snippy with you. I was, I was mean, not kind, not gracious. Will you forgive me? I said, I've sinned before God and, and before you. And he was like, oh, no, no, no. no I, I didn't even notice you did anything. It, it's okay. I mean, we all get kind of stressed sometimes. And da, da, da. I said, Mark, Mark, no. No, my God does not call me to represent him this way. And, and I don't want to respond to your appeal in an unloving way. And I did. But you see, I had to be willing to lay down my pride. I had to be willing to die to myself to engage that conversation. And there are some of you here that have situations like that. Or perhaps you have situations where you have opportunity to share the gospel. And what it will take is for you to set aside your comfort, set aside your pride, perhaps even set aside your own self-righteousness, and go and be willing to be God's mouthpiece before others. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and here's the point. Living to the glory of God is costly. Worship is costly. There is no free lunch, friends. Worship is costly. Listen to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes. Uh, remember, Bonhoeffer is a pastor in Nazi Germany, and he would lose his life in confronting Adolf Hitler. Listen to what he says. Cheap grace is preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. He goes on to say, such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. 
You see, we aren't trying to earn an inheritance. This, this costly worship isn't about us earning God's favor. Rather, it's about the favor that God has lavishly bestowed upon us, his enemies. Jim Elliott, the great missionary, said this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. What a great testimony of a man who not only said those things, but lived them who gave his life so that the Alka Indians would one day know and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's what Jesus is telling us as followers. We need to be willing to put it all in. Lastly, the king's motivation. It's pretty simple. It's here at the end of verse 26. The Father will honor him. For those who follow Christ, who serve Christ, who live radically, being willing to take the risks to see God glorified, there's a reward. A reward of well done, good and faithful servant. Do you long for that reward? Oh, I sure do. And I don't care if that reward means going to an engineering job every day. I don't care if that reward means going to the heart of Africa. Oh, do I long, I long for God to say when my life is done that the choices I make, the little ones and the big ones, reflect the great infinite worth of his sacrifice for me. Jesus says a life lived that way is worth the risk. When John the Baptist comes and confronts Herod and says, you are an adulterer, fine sir, at the expense of his head, it was worth the risk. One writer writing about following Christ said this. He said, If our single, all-embracing passion is to make much of Christ in life and death, and if the life that magnifies him most is the life of costly love, then life is risk, and risk is right. To run from it is to waste your life. Are you running from risk? Are are you hoarding uh, yabbits in your house? And saying, Lord, I'd be willing to, but wait until my cricket career's over, C.T. Studd could have said. Lord, I'd be willing to, to support the missionary work in China, but uh, I, I kind of need to invest and protect for the long haul. Lord, uh, I'd be willing to go to Africa, but the doctor said I shouldn't go. You see, when you reject the yabbits, By default, your life glorifies and magnifies a God who keeps his promises. And that is what Jesus is calling us to here. The reward of the cruciform life, brothers and sisters, it is worth the risk. That's what we have been building toward this many weeks in studying John's gospel. He writes these things so that we might know that Jesus is the Christ. His promises are true. They are sure. We have an internal joy secure for us. And then he says, I write these things that you may know that, you, uh, that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing, by really putting the full weight, by risking all for him, you might have life, life in his name. You see, risk, as one writer says, reflects God's value, not our valor. What's remarkable about the life of C.T. Studd is not his own valor, as great as it was. It's the God behind the valor, 
A God who used his life time and time again as he gave up a promising career, as he gave up a a family fortune, as he gave up his very life for the sake of the gospel. On the far side of every risk, this author writes, even if it results in death, the love of God triumphs. This is the faith that frees us to risk for the cause of God. It is not heroism or lust for adventure or courageous self-reliance or efforts to earn God's favor. It is childlike faith in the triumph of God's love that on the other side of all our risks, for the sake of righteousness, God will still be holding us. We will be eternally satisfied in him. Nothing will have been wasted. In the words of the Apostle Paul, our labor in the Lord because of the resurrection is never in vain. Never. There's no better promise, friends. There's no more sure investment of our lives than in the Lord Jesus Christ. C.T. Studd, and I'll close with this, said this, and I think it's fitting. He said, some wish to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Is that true of your heart? Are you willing to take all the clutter of your heart and get rid of it, to embrace Christ as the supreme treasure of your heart and say, I'm going to start shooting yabbits one at a time, one situation, one little opportunity at a time. When we're willing to die to self that we might live for Christ, Our lives will bear fruit to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, your grace is amazing that you would give the life, the perfect life of your son as a sacrifice for us. Rebel enemies is unbelievable. And forgive us, Lord, for treasuring things that are so futile, so fleeting, so invaluable in comparison with the infinite worth of Christ. Oh Lord, fuel our lives with the worship of our great King, a King who gave his life so we might know what true life really is. Lord, may our lives embrace the cross before the crown. May we willingly hate our lives in this world that we might preserve them, keep them, for that day when Christ will come back and we'll see him face to face. Oh Lord, may we live for that day, I pray in Jesus' precious name, amen. Would you stand with me as we close our service with a benediction from Jude. As Jude concludes his letter, he says, now unto him who is able to keep you even from stumbling and to present you faultless before his throne, with exceeding joy to the only wise God be majesty, dominion, power, and glory both now and forever. And all those who would treasure the Lord Jesus Christ would say, amen. You are dismissed. Thank you for coming.